Hello, everyone. Welcome to Small Town Famous, coffee, bourbon, and the grit in between. I am your host and podcast creator, Ian, and I have a special guest tonight. I have my dad, and he is going to read his story from 9-11 and what he recalls from that day and I guess a few days after he discovered it happened. So without further ado, I'm going to mute my mic because we're having sound issues sometimes, and I'm going to let him introduce himself and start his story. How you doing? My September was spent, as it always was, hunting. I was unplugged, far off the grid, in a remote valley, off the Denali Highway in interior Alaska. I was on my annual moose hunt with my neighbor Dennis and my buddy Ron. We'd been in camp almost two weeks. Dennis and I each had connected with grizzly bears, and we also had a moose or two hanging in camp. On the afternoon of Monday, September 10th, Ron and I climbed in my Argo to explore a part of the valley we'd never hunted before. Several hours later, we were glassing the hills for game. We spotted a large sow grizzly and watched her chase off her adolescent cub to be on his own. We'd never seen that happen before. She chased it all the way over a huge mountain. Once she was convinced the young one would not return and follow her, she made her way down our side of the mountain and began to graze on berries. We planned our stock and we were able to take her about an hour before dark. We loaded her up in the Argo and headed for camp. We made a rather poor decision to head back to camp around the far side of the mountain in hopes the return trip would be easier than the way we entered the valley. It was not easier by a long shot. We crawled the Argo through pitch darkness, flooded creek sloughs all night. The trip was exhausting. We made it back to camp about 2.30 in the morning. We slept in on the 11th, still recovering from the night before. When we finally did get up, we made breakfast and tended to the bear hide. Ron and I heard a group of ptarmigan clucking near camp and thought a few of those would make a nice addition to the dinner menu. So we grabbed our 22 rifles and headed out after them. Not soon after we took to the bushes, nature called my buddy Ron. We turned around for camp so he could take care of business. While we were in camp, an A-10 fighter jet came screaming over our heads at an altitude so low I could see the pilot's helmet clearly. The roar of his engine startled us all. Since Ron was in the Air Force, I jokingly asked if he was in the bushes saluting his pilot buddy. The low-altitude flyby startled us, but it didn't seem unusual. The Denali Highway is a 135-mile-long gravel road, and is populated by only three or four lodges over its entire length. This makes ideal country for low-altitude, nap-of-the-earth flying for military aircraft. The rest of the hunt went as expected. Over the next few days, we packed up camp and hauled everything back to the river. And on the 14th, we loaded the trucks and headed home. As ritual dictated, we pulled into the gas station in Cantwell to gas up and call the wives to let them know we made it to the road safely and we would be home in four hours. Ron headed into the store to call home while Dennis and I gassed up our trucks. Once Dennis and I finished, 
we headed in to make calls and grab snacks for the long drive home. We noticed Ron was still on the payphone, so we grabbed our snacks, and as I passed him, I told him, dude, just tell her you'll be home in four hours. Ron's sharp, all-business glance, followed by his reply of, get a paper, really took me by surprise. So I walked up to the counter to pay for my purchase. I asked the store clerk what was so all-fired important that I had to get a paper. She then sighed and replied, Oh, you don't know, do you? We were attacked. As I looked at the paper on the counter, showing the burning trade towers, she gave us a brief recount of the events. As I tried to process all this information, I couldn't help feeling like I had left one reality two weeks prior and just stepped into an entirely different one. I was active duty National Guard and Ron was active duty Air Force and we immediately wondered if or for how long our units had been put on alert or even activated. We got to our trucks and turned on our cell phones. Back then there was hardly any cell service in Cantwell. The phones came to life and we had minimal reception, just long enough for all the voicemails and texts to update our phones. Ron's unit had been placed on alert and his phone was maxed out with messages. Ron's wife also gave Ron's unit my cell number, so my phone was also maxed out with messages for him. I did call my wife Lori, and her only response was, just get home. Once Ron made contact with his unit, we headed south for Anchorage. We had walkie-talkies with us, and Ron and I used them to talk with Dennis following behind us in his truck. We turned on the AM radio, and only could reach one station. The only discussion on that station all night was the events of 9-11. By then, we had a strong indication of who had perpetrated the attack. We were in utter shock on the drive home. I can't convey adequately the feeling of displacement. It was like being in a time warp. When we learned that the entire U.S. airspace had been closed to all air traffic, it now made sense about the A-10 flyover. It then occurred to us that we had not heard or seen any other small aircraft since Tuesday. During hunting season, the skies are littered with small planes loaded with hunters. This raised unique problems in Alaska as there were hundreds of hunters that had been dropped off to remote hunting spots all over the state. Very few of them had any communication with their pilots or flight services, so they had no way of knowing why they hadn't been picked up or at least visited at the designated pickup time. I learned that several pilots flew anyway in direct violation of the FAA order. They felt they had to reach out to as many of their clients as possible to let them know they weren't forgotten and why they hadn't been picked up. Some pilots faced heavy fines for that. We made it home and over the next few days began to piece the events together. I wanted to stay in front of the TV to catch up, but I had a family to reassure and meet to process. Many of us in Alaska love the idea of unplugging from the modern world, and it can be done. But I learned that just because I'd unplugged from the world, I was still a part of it, and what happens to it affects me deeply. In the weeks and months that followed, we shared 
where we were on 9-11 stories, much like my generation's parents share, where were you when JFK was shot? So I remember you telling me that there was some something that happened shortly after 9-11, so why don't you reiterate on that and we'll go from there. Yeah, so at the time I was involved in the ground-based mid-course missile defense project uh, to protect our country against ICBMs. And I would uh, travel to and from uh, Colorado at uh, North American Air Defense Operations, NORAD in Cheyenne Mountain. And we would train to integrate our missile defense system into NORAD's larger system. And so I met quite a few other National Guardsmen through that. And one of my buddies named was Reed. He was in the North Dakota National Guard and he was in an aviation unit and he was at work the morning of 9-11 when the attack happened. And so he and his buddies were watching all this unfold on TV in their break room. And he got a cell phone call and it was his uncle. His uncle's a farmer there in North Dakota. His uncle asked him, he said, hey, Reed, is there something going on I should know about? And he says, uh, yeah, where the hell are you? He says, well, I'm out here in my wheat field in the combine, and uh, this is the first time in my life I've ever seen these ICBM silo doors open. So uh, that tells me that NORAD was uh, locked and cocked and ready to rock. Um, incidentally, at NORAD, when 9-11 attacks happened, they were in the middle of shift change from night shift to day shift. And so when all that happened, the command quickly grabbed both shifts, put them in the mountain, completely locked the mountain off into emergency operations for three weeks. Nobody in, nobody out. Those huge vault doors you see on TV in the movies, those are real. They're like four foot thick blast doors. And they closed those and they closed off that tunnel access. And those folks sat in there trying to figure out what was going on and if there'd be subsequent attacks for the next three weeks. So just wanted to add that uh, to my story there. So that was my dad's story. Um, it's been a while since I've heard his. And I think you added some extra stuff to it because I don't remember some of that stuff at the end, or am I incorrect? No, I added those two last paragraphs as footnotes. Okay. Um, it was a, it was definitely a, a weird time because I mean, like you said in yours, uh, there was no arguing, there was no bickering, and every stranger you passed. You know, people made eye contact, mm. and they gave a nod and acknowledgement, and that was important because we were we were reassuring each other that yeah, you know, I got your back, you got mine, and uh, that only lasted a very short time, and that is really disappointing because. Uh, Within a month of that happening, um, the two political sides were pointing fingers and yep. 
bickering and it was back to business as usual for the swamp. Um, and the rest of us were just wondering what do we do next? Mm-hmm. You know, how do we get back to where we were a month ago? You know, and uh, I've said it many, many times that it's going to take a 9-11 in every city, God forbid, to get people thinking as Americans again and not all these subgroups the government and those in power like to divide us into. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's an old saying, um, the less you have in common with someone, the less likely you are to come to their defense or their aid. And I believe that's what we're experiencing now. And 9-11 gave us all something to have in common. Our grief, our shock, our pain. We were all united. It didn't matter if you were black, white, brown, yellow, gay, straight, old, young. We were all just Americans grieving the loss of other Americans. Uh, Yeah, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, I mean, not much to it. It's been 20 years tomorrow. It's crazy. And it's like, I told myself, like, I'm going to tell my kids about this when when Atlas is able to comprehend. But now I have a son to uh, share this with in a few years. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to try to keep my speaking at a minimal just because we're having echoing issues on my end, not my dad's end. So... But I wanted to, uh, he wanted to come in and share his story. So I figured it would have been a good opportunity to. And this will come out tomorrow because right now it is 9-11 Eve. I suppose that's the appropriate terminology for it. Probably, yeah. Uh, Anything you want to add? I just, I want to add that... The media and the swamp in Washington really wants us to forget that every one of us, we have more in common with each other than we are different. And they prey on our differences. And if 9-11 means anything to anyone, we just need to remember that that we have more in common as freedom-loving, peace-loving, family-loving Americans, humans, really, occupants of this planet. Um, We owe it to each other. We owe it to our children and our grandchildren to instill that in them. To show a basic respect to strangers. Um, I've told you this when you were growing up, that there's, in my opinion, there's two different kinds of respect. There is 
the common respect that you give strangers. Be polite, be courteous, don't disrespect them. And then there's a respect that's earned through individual deeds. Everyone has the power to exercise both of those forms of respect. And tomorrow on 9-11, I think we should all practice that basic human respect to strangers. Give someone a nod. Give someone a smile. Greet them. You know, let's be Americans. Let's be humans. Ladies and gentlemen, that's my dad. So we'll end it there. And I will be coming back at you maybe next week with some content on something. There's plenty to discuss on my plate that I have written down. And I have several people coming in to share their COVID stories locally, which uh, might get some of you thinking. Um, I know there's a lot of folks on the my opposing, my, my opponents, <laughs> my friendly opponents that kind of like using the term misinformation. And I get there's a lot of stuff on the internet, but I believe all things change when it's someone you know. And in this case, it's three or four people that I know that the same stuff that we're quote unquote reading on the internet is now happening to them here locally. And I've had a couple folks, five total, four out of the medical community, either write letters on their stories or have messaged me these god awful long novels on what's happened to them over the weekend. So I'm hoping to bring them in. I don't know how I'm going to do it. Maybe I have to record it in segments and then put it all together. Uh, but I'm going to get it done. And I kind of want to challenge the whole misinformation thing. So that's what you can look forward to in the next week or two. Um, I always forget to please share my podcast. Um, I'm, I guess the term is shadow banned pretty good on Facebook to where I don't get much traffic going to my posts in regards to the podcast. I get more traffic from strangers on WordPress from all over the world than I do my own uh, Facebook. So if you guys can share it, like it, send it to friends, I'd appreciate it. Um, If there's any sound issues on this, I apologize. We're working on it. And I do it in my garage and it's an echo chamber in here. So anyways, thanks guys. And I will see you next time.